This is UCD Business Impact, a new podcast series from the UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. And joining us this week, Professor Neve Brennan, who is, of course, the Michael McCormick Professor of Management at UCD and also the founder of the UCD Centre for Corporate Governance, is on the line and on our first edition. You're very welcome along, Neve. Great to talk to you. I feel a bit nervous as, as a former student of yours. Uh, I'm probably going to be a bit more nervous during this interview than you will be, but we'll get through that blockage. Um, it's been an incredible few weeks. Um, there's obviously the incredibly sobering death toll we're looking at. We're looking at the health service under huge pressure. I think the business world is just topsy-turvy, doesn't know where it's going. The markets seem to lurch from one from optimism to pessimism sort of within the, the time of 10 minutes or 20 minutes each day. And major decisions having to be taken by companies. I mean, what's your just sort of reaction to the last few weeks from looking at it organizationally and so on? Um, well, as you said in your introduction, Emmett, you know, we're dealing nationally and internationally with uh, life or death issues in relation to COVID-19. But company directors are also dealing with life or death issues, specifically the life or death of their company. So I would say for company directors in that situation, um, they probably have a couple of top of the list items. First of all, can they keep the company going? Can they keep it alive? Uh, interestingly, today, uh, one of the top business news items is that Debenhams has been put into administration. So there's an example of a company where the directors could not keep the company alive. So top of the list is keeping the company alive. And I think also for company directors is keeping themselves safe. Because when a company approaches insolvency, um, there are particularly onerous legal responsibilities on company directors. So each company director will be mindful of executing their legal duties in a manner that keeps them safe and that they don't get end up, for example, being uh, in front of the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement or the courts or whatever. Sure. And before they even get to that point, something I wanted to tease out with you, which is a bit of a thesis that I don't know whether it holds water or not, but I do hear it a lot since this whole crisis has descended upon us. And that is the thesis that companies with shorter command chains of command, smaller boards, less people, less cooks spoiling the broth, to use an old cliche, that they will be able to manage this better than what you might call unwieldy boards or you know, companies where there's a lot of people getting involved, big crisis teams and committees and so on. Do you think that thesis holds water or do you think, no, hang on a second, it really depends on the personnel involved? First of all, nowadays, modern corporate governance thinking nowadays is that a company board should not be too large or unwieldy. So most uh, good company boards would be of a size of 11 or 12 people. So I, I don't think the unwieldiness necessarily 
uh, comes down to the board. It may actually come down to uh, the management in terms of how management organizes the top team and the extent to which the top team of managers, the senior management team, uh, are a very large number of people unwieldy or whether the CEO has a tight number of uh, kitchen cabinets, so to speak, around him or her. Um, so I, I, I think that as far as a board is concerned, the issue for the board is to make decisions, to make decisions that stand up to scrutiny after the events, um, and to make decisions that are in the interest of the company, that keep the company safe, that keep themselves safe. Yeah, I mean, that's that's ultimately the aim. I, I suppose sometimes decision-making, you might not have the full suite of information. Um, and one of the big problems they all companies have at the moment is we just don't know when this this virus is going to peak. Uh, we hear uh, we have stories in France, in Spain, and in Italy that, you know, the number of cases may be starting to dip somewhat. But, you know, here in Ireland, we don't really know when this so-called surge is going to come. So it, would it be fair to say that most companies are really looking at very incomplete information. You, you don't know whether this is a crisis of the summertime or for the next six or nine months. So in that environment, is, is a lot of it just guesswork to some degree? I suppose you could say up to a point. I mean, when you talk about companies and incomplete information, we can take that one level higher. We are seeing the evidence play out in front of our eyes of the judgments in circumstances of incomplete information that governments have made. And we've seen governments that have made very poor decisions that are not playing out well. And we've seen governments that have made conservative and quick decisions that are serving the citizens of those countries well. And um, equally, I think that uh, boards of directors have to be managing the risks using whatever evidence is available to them. So yes, they're in incomplete information, but they're not in circumstances of no information. And uh, I suppose combining risk management with the incomplete information, then they have to do scenario planning and um, they have to make the best judgment they can uh, in the interest of the company. And by the way, when a company is approaching insolvency, the duty of directors shifts a bit. So normally the duty of a director is to the company itself, but in times of insolvency, the duty switches from the company to the creditors of the company. So that's an additional kind of layer of complexity for company directors. And on top of that, company law requires company directors to have regard for the interests of the employees of the organization. Now that duty is subservient to the duty to the creditors and to the duty of the company itself. Well, I'm glad you, you brought that up, Neve, because it's balancing those interests, right? That's everything that, that, that the job is about. And we see evidence of this just about everywhere. We've got Premier League football clubs, for instance, saying, do they put certain workers on a furlough? Do they stop the wages of their big star players? You see that happening in other companies where they're getting on the taxpayer-assisted schemes for their salary base, both in the UK and in, here in Ireland as well. So it always was pretty simple. I mean, you know more about this than I would, but it was always pretty simple that ultimately you're serving the shareholders ultimately. Now that has shifted. But now, as you say, you've got customers in the mix. You've got suppliers in the mix who are really suddenly shift in importance during a, a supply chain shock. 
and you've got employees, which you've mentioned yourselves. So, okay, there's various legal obligations, but just at a cultural level, I suppose, where do managers and boards look to? I mean, how do they find a system that allows them to weigh up all these different interests and sort of almost tier them? You know, this is number one, this is number two, this is number three, because at times you won't be able to really keep all of them um, happy. Well, again, this is where it comes down to the individuals involved and company directing and management are down to the individuals and also are a question of judgment. But as is always the case, there will be decent people doing the best they can in very adverse circumstances. And then, unfortunately, there'll be the chancers. So, for example, I have been completely disappointed, and that's not even a strong enough word, disgusted actually is the right word, at the companies that have recently paid a dividend when they saw this coming. Yes. um, They looked after their shareholders, but in looking after their shareholders, they behaved, in my opinion, by my standards, absolutely despicably. And just to be precise about this, are you talking about companies that paid dividends since the COVID outbreak came along? Are you are you pointing to a wider issue of having paid out in recent years? No, I'm talking about companies who uh, paid out or declared a dividend and insisted they were going to pay the dividend in the last month. Okay, yes. Well, that is... I don't want to. I don't want to um, name names because I don't want to get my employer UCD in front of the courts. So well, I'm uh, glad. I'm glad you're also committed to that. Yeah, but I mean, you can read the business press, and you know there is a discussion and a debate around. We'll say the moral integrity of those companies that have paid rich shareholders um, and are have no qualms about um, making making staff redundancy, redundant, uh, or putting them on furlough or whatever. Yes, and, and there is a wider issue as well, isn't there, about making choices. So say you've got a group of customers in the healthcare area, for example, who do you supply first, right? You've got three or four different hospitals. You can see this in the States at the moment where there's different people calling on companies. There's a company called Medtronic, which we know here in Ireland that make the ventilators Say they make a production of a thousand ventilators a week. How do they decide how they're going to supply different customers? So are they falling back on a moral code, or is it what's the most profitable business line, or is it about relationships they've established over the years with particular customer groups? So how do they go about doing that? And we don't really know a whole lot about how it's actually happening at the moment. Um, well, you know, you have some businesses who uh, have you know a single metric, and that is making more money for the shareholders. Um, And then we have, as a very interesting contrast, we have healthcare workers who are putting their own lives on the line to save the lives of others. And um, I do think that businesses who are profiteering at other people's expense, uh, particularly at people who are sick and all the rest, we should call them out. And we should not put up with that kind of behavior. But unfortunately, people see advantage in other people's adversity and take advantage of that. Uh, But it's not fair, it's not moral, and we should call it out. Strong words, and I don't think there'll be many uh, disagreeing with you. I I suppose, as you say, can we call it out? Will people remember this when this crisis eventually ends? Will these companies 
be damaged, do you think, long term? Will consumers turn their backs on them? Well, that's that's a very big question. Uh, What are the consequences of poor behavior? And sometimes, you know, life isn't fair. And uh, sometimes uh, businesses that behave unethically are not punished by the market as they should be. Now, you're hearing, Nave, and I'm hearing as well, endless talk about the world is going to look very different when this is over. And I, I have to say, I'm a bit more sceptical about whether that's going to be the case or not. We I am the, too. We had the financial crisis, did a whole lot change. Certainly, the regulatory landscape did, but you know, not that far-reaching in some respects. But let's go with it anyway and say that the world is going to look very different. Just, just before you go with that, I am completely and totally uh, in agreement with your perspective I, too, uh, think that not a lot changed after the financial crisis, other than a greater bureaucracy of regulation. Because at the end of the day, you know, human beings are human beings. They still behave as human beings. So um, I, I'm, I'm too, um, would question this assumption that a huge amount is going to change. I think some things will change. I think, for example, uh, the way in which we use technology in relation to our work, that kind of thing will change. But at the end of the day, I don't think that human beings are going to change because human beings are always human beings. Yes, I, I think that's definitely true. And also, what I'd love to know, and nobody can answer this at this stage, but what is the purpose of a company in the new environment? So we, we know what it was before. Going forward into the next few months and years, who are these constituencies that a company serves? As you've mentioned, there's employees, there are shareholders, there is management itself in a self-serving sense, there is the wider community, there is the environment, you know, the climactic impact of a company at its, its sort of imprint on our, our natural world. There's all these extra, dare I use that word, stakeholders coming into play, but will they be sort of um, in a contest in the future? Will the, the balance between them shift Will, for example, employees' influence grow? Will customers of companies, you know, will their influence grow? My own instinct is that initially the role of employee is going to be very important, but I think it will fade in time when the normal dynamics of supply and demand of labor and so on kicks back in again. Yes, and I mean, uh, you know, the life of an employee nowadays is not that attractive in the sense that they are on zero hours contracts, they're on short-term contracts, they can be, they're treated as a total commodity, they can be moved in and out of companies at the drop of a hat. Um, So, you know, it is their labor that generates the profits for companies, but I wonder at how fairly they are treated in terms of their contribution uh, to uh, generate those profits. And I suppose there's lots of talk is is cheap enough commodity. What's more interesting is how companies are run, governed, managed, owned, I suppose. The part that I'd love to know is if employees are going to be a stronger force in the future, surely they have to storm the ramparts of the boards of companies, because that's ultimately where control rests in terms of the, the, the governance of a company. So Yes, we can reward them more through pay mechanisms. We can do other things. As you said, we can improve their working conditions. But do they not need to be represented or do they need to be represented at board level? Now, we have worker directors and so on in various state companies. But do you think that's something that will start to get dragged down off the shelf and looked at afresh at the end of all this? I wouldn't say so. I'm, I'm not a great fan of worker directors, I, although I do think in some respects they have a value. The problem with worker directors is they have such a conflict of interest. 
but it makes it extremely difficult for them to operate at a board level uh, because of their, especially work, elected worker directors, you know, where their concern is to get re-elected as opposed to look after the best interest of the company. So I think worker directors, uh, the conflicts of interest are very, very awkward and tricky. And you hear lots of uh, bad stories out of companies that have worker directors where the worker director does not know how to behave as a company director. I don't know that having worker directors will solve the problem of how to treat people properly in companies. I think that this notion around companies that the only group that counts, which is shareholders, and the only thing that counts, which is shareholder value, I think that is uh, very problematic in terms of uh, how to run companies properly. And I have tweeted and uh, just put something up today, actually, this morning, because we teach our students in universities about agency theory. And the fundamental assumption of agency theory is self-interest. And I've, I've said that it's just as well that we don't teach agency theory to healthcare workers who are unbelievably selflessly putting their own lives at risk for the good of other people. And I feel that if only some of that disposition could come into the corporate world, we would be so much better off. And what do you make of some of the donations by companies? There's various, Intel have made some, Vodafone have made some, bigger companies even than them have made donations. Apple have a big announcement this morning about um, manufacturing face masks and so on. Do you see that as sort of what is called greenwashing sometimes? Or do you see this as companies, yes, taking care of their employees and the shareholders, which you've mentioned, but they can have that second or third cap on their heads where they make that wider societal contribution? Um, I think there probably is a bit of greenwashing going on, but at the same time, I think there's a huge amount of corporate good behaviour happening and a huge amount of corporate concern that this is not just affecting individuals uh, from a health point of view, but it's also affecting the health of the corporate world. And so there are loads of fantastic examples of really, really good behaviour in the corporate world. So I, I apologise if some of my earlier comments were maybe a little bit more on the negative side, um, and you're correct, Emmett, to call out all the good work that is being done. And I think it's genuine, although there are the charlatans in amongst that as well. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Neve, and I'd really be fascinated to hear your take on it, is the performance of the public sector. Now, it is by definition selective. I'm only going to be asking you about the COVID-19. There are other parts of the, the public sector out of the limelight. But in terms of what you've seen the likes of the HSE, the Department of Health, the wider, what we call government system. Have you, and I know you don't have any more insight than anyone else in terms of what you've seen, but from what you have seen, how has it responded to your eyes? And is that just a function of the people involved or do you think it's government systems themselves are much more resilient than they might have been 5, 10, 20 years ago? Um, well, I am a public sector worker myself, Emmett. Correct. Um, yes. So I, I suppose I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come at your question with that bias. But I do feel that it has been across a whole lot of different areas, a remarkable everyone putting their shoulder to the wheel. So, for example, if you look at the guards, uh, the Gardaí, 
they're just doing a phenomenal job trying to support the government, for example, with its new, uh, you know, self-isolation and, and that kind of thing. Um, the revenue commissioners are really, really doing their best to try and come up with uh, systems that help businesses and individuals across this. Um, in the universities, there's been an enormous effort to keep the show on the road and to um, keep students educated and prepared for exams, etc. In the secondary school level, teachers are going, you know, beyond the the end degree to help their students to provide a service at a distance and all the rest. So I think the public sector has come out of this looking really, really good. And one of the things, Emma, that has been rattling through my mind is this public sector versus privatization debate. I mean, a lot of governments have actually ended up uh, bringing back into the public sector what previously had been privatized activities. And I think that question should come back on the agenda for governments when all of this is over. Like, should we privatize our transport systems? Is it more efficient or is it better to privatize, uh, particularly if you look at the UK, uh, the privatization of transport uh, just hasn't worked well at all in the UK. And they're now uh, to, to save, to, to keep the, uh, the railway, the transport companies alive, they've now brought them back into the public system. So I think it just raises a very interesting question on privatize or keep public services. Well, yeah, speaking personally, I, I just, again, looking at it from the outside, it seems to be, to me, to my eyes, the finest hour of the public service in Ireland so far. Obviously, things could go wrong. There, there has been issues with equipment and so on in some areas. Let's not downplay that. But having said all of that, generally, the performance seems very, very credible, sometimes inspirational, people really pulling together. And I think when some of the earlier predictions had been made about the level of um, damage that would be done to the health service were made, I think that the pushback against that has come from the individuals in the health service who've really sort of surprised, I think, some of their previous critics in how well a body like the HSE has done. And they're under a huge public scrutiny, remember. Every move, every press conference is attended by hundreds of people online and social media networks and so on. That's new and that's different. So I don't think there's any private sector organization that's had a microscope applied to it to that extent. Yeah. I mean, I've done a fair amount of work in the health services area and I have had huge new insights from the way in which healthcare workers think. And I've never seen it as palpably as is evident at the moment. These people are putting their own lives on the line uh, to look after their patients. And that really is inspiring to see them. And I really have never seen the Irish health services operate in, in such a way, um, because unfortunately, one of the biggest critics critics of the Irish Health Service is the healthcare workers themselves. Um, it's a heavily unionised sector, um, but actually, that, that's gone quiet. And instead, all you hear about is genuine efforts to um, look after the best interests of the patients, and it really, really is inspiring. And the business world could learn an awful lot from them. Yeah, and I want to layer something on top of that, which is this whole question of centralization. When I see um, President Trump in the US 
fighting with various governors. I see governors fighting with each other for resources, the likes of ventilators, respirators, masks, and so on. Then I look at Ireland, where we're pretty centralised. We have central government departments, and out from there goes various like spokes in a wheel out to various bodies locally. But we're, we pretty much only have a small centre of authority in a lot of cases. Has that been seen, I think anyway, that it has been seen to be a strength Whereas when you disperse power down to various layers, like they have in the federal structure in the US, it seems to slow things down. It seems to make things more bureaucratic. So I don't know if that's one of the lessons from all of this, but it certainly strikes me that the US so far has found that to be a bit of a vulnerability for them, at least. Well, I'm very glad, Emmett, that you asked this question. Um, I was involved in 2002-2003 in the establishment of the HSE. Uh, I chaired a group which subsequently, and the group issued a report, it was subsequently called the Brennan Report, colloquially. But that report and one other recommended establishing the HSE. And ever since then, it has been subject to intense criticism. I have never, ever doubted the wisdom of that recommendation because when I looked at all of the successful organizations all over the world, they had what I like to call a head office. Now, up until uh, 2003, we had 11 health boards and a plethora of health agencies, all of which were brought in to uh, form the HSE with a huge amount of criticism of having this centralized, almost communist uh, monolith. But to me, it always made sense that there would be a single national agency in charge of health and that you would have consistent policies across the country, uh, no matter where you were in the country, that the same standards were being applied. And I think that the establishment of the HSE uh, the wisdom of forming that body, I think, is absolutely palpable at the moment. They are all so much singing off the same hymn sheet. And I have to say, I feel so proud uh, to be Irish. I have people from other countries emailing me and commenting so positively about what they see going on in Ireland. And what, what is that down to the, the people or, as you say, the structures or is it a combination of the two? I think it's a combination of the two. I think that we've had extraordinarily strong leadership from individuals, uh, both at the political level, at the department level and then at the HSE level. They are, uh, I'm sure it's probably not quite as seamless behind the scenes as it appears, but they are all absolutely singing off the same hymn sheet. Their standard of communication is exceptional. Uh, we citizens are receiving hugely consistent communication and messages, which makes it easier for us to understand how to behave. Um, and I think the national effort has been absolutely exceptional. Uh, here, here, I would I would agree with you fully on that. And and to loop back to the start of our interview, we were talking a little bit about boards and, and scary ideas like insolvency and companies going out of business, managing the various interests they have to. Is there two or three things you'd identify if you were sitting on a board now or even if you were in senior management team that you'd be watching over over the next few weeks as this crisis either deepens or at the very least peaks but remains ever present? Well, one of the things I would be doing is I'd be trying to make friends because 
we're not going to get through this on our own. So I think talking to key stakeholders and the key stakeholders that I think from a company's point of view are uh, the banks, the revenue, state agencies, and that people cooperate and work together to get through this. So um, that would be, I would say, top of my agenda is to uh, not bury your head in the sand over this, but actually to communicate with your uh, with people, with your stakeholders, get them on side, earn trust. You need to earn trust because you need the support of these people on whom you depend. So that would be kind of top of my agenda. I'd be kind of... Uh, and again, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but you know, company directors have to look after the best interests of their company, but they need also to make sure that in their own individual behavior as directors, that they keep themselves safe and that after the event, nobody could turn around and accuse them of having behaved improperly, which could come with consequences. And is there any sort of concept like good faith? You know, they acted in good faith. They didn't have, as we mentioned earlier, a complete information. Does that put any defense around a director, either legally or otherwise? It does, but uh, actually I've just written a case study. It's just been published there a month ago uh, on a contracting company, Pierce Contracting. And um, uh, they were up in court um, and they were they luckily had a judge who understood that um, the argument by the, by the plaintiff, which is the liquidator, was uh, with the benefit of hindsight. So the liquidator was trying to suggest the directors hadn't behaved properly, um, but they viewed the events with the benefit of hindsight. And, and that's the risk that, you know, if company directors are being pursued in 10 years' time when the economy has recovered, hopefully, and things look very different, that they may be, their actions may be viewed through uh, the lens of hindsight as opposed to viewing uh, their actions through the lens of today, which is the challenges they are trying to grapple with today. And, and the word opportunity it sort of sits a little bit uncomfortably, I suppose, with us in, in amid some of the things that you're talking about. But inevitably, some companies will, will come out of this better than others. Some are more cash rich than others. Others are in sectors that are a bit more protected. You look at like the supermarket food area, for example. Other sectors are, are very damaged. I mean, do companies actually just say, let's get through this end of story? Or do they say to themselves, the world is going to look different at the end of this period and we need to actually see that there are opportunities among the difficulties? Or is that the totally wrong way to look at it? I think that is completely the right way to look at it, Emmett. And by the way, the word opportunity is not the same as the word opportunistic. Correct. And opportunistic has a sense that you're going to kind of uh, take advantage of somebody else. But not, there is... Unquestionably, there are opportunities out there as a result of this. And so in grappling with day-to-day, -day, company directors shouldn't lose sight of strategic imperatives uh, and looking at strategic opportunities that they could uh, take advantage of out of this. So you're quite right to raise that issue. This could be the making of a company and it could also be the breaking of a company. All right. Well, we'll see which way it goes. Thanks very much, Neve. It's been a good conversation. I think we'll only know in time where, how this is all going to play out. There's the desperate battle in the hospitals and then there's the wider economic damage 
and our political leaders, I suppose, will have a huge influence about how it all eventually works out over time and over the next few months. And thank you very much for your, your steer on a few of those issues. I hope that the listeners of the podcast enjoyed it. I'm no doubt we'll talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thanks, Emmett.